everybody. Welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact all of us every single day. Hopefully, we can give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I am joined today by Dr. David Kipper and Peter Tilden. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Great. I'm Anna Vicino, your co-host. Good to see you, Anna. Nice. I almost said nice to meet you. I don't nice know. Nice to meet you too. I think I got that short-term thing going on now. <laughs> it's like it's been the first time all over again. David, short-term memory is that when that goes? Any is that a sign? <laughs> a sign. You know what? I you know what? Before we get into the show, let me, yeah. it's just, this this ticks me off, and I want I should ask David medically. So I forget names like crazy now, like of actors and stuff. And I realized the other night, though, I said to my wife. I, we watch more movies in a week than my parents watched in their entire lifetimes. I've got Netflix and Amazon and all this stuff. So we got the input that's coming in that's incredible. Too much My parents knew nine movie stars. My, right. it was that, it was that. And they We've were got all Cary Grant. And they were all Cary Grant, exactly. Is that a thing, David, that over, overload also causes memory issues? Because I find myself, like I said, I couldn't remember, um, I forget now I forget his name I forgot the other day. But I think it's that the input is so great. Yes? You know, Peter, you're absolutely right. It's focusing issues. You don't focus as well. There's too much noise. Hold on. So then would Peter be a sword or a shield, according to your book, Overdrive? Peter and I are sharp swords oh. all the way. Which means what? Explain that to people briefly. A sword is somebody that has a neurochemical imbalance in their dopamine system in the brain and they have specific behaviors that are related to that imbalance uh, dopamine is a stimulating neurotransmitter so people that have a deficiency syndrome are looking for stimulation these are people that are risk takers these are people that need immediate gratification they are motivated by reward uh, focusing issues, uh, anger management issues. Also, we tend to have more uh, behavioral addictions, sex addictions, shopping addictions. You ever wonder why you give a child with ADD that's running circles around his classmates in the fourth grade classroom, why would you give that kid a stimulant? The stimulant is dopamine. The reason they're hyperactive, their dopamine levels in the brain are imbalanced. You fill their tank with a little dopamine from the Adderall, the Ritalin, the Dexedrine, and they start focusing again. They calm down. In the book, we refer to people that have a dopamine imbalance as swords. They're out there. They're more active. They're, and those that have the serotonin imbalance, we refer to as shields. They're more cautious they have the opposite kinds of behaviors. They're not uh, as risk-taking. They think things through a lot better. They're motivated by fear of a negative outcome. Uh, they have much more anxiety, social anxiety. What's interesting about these two different subsets is that they're attracted to two different abuse substances. And all of that is uh, in an attempt to self-soothe. So if you're a sword, you would be attracted to things that are more stimulating like cocaine, methamphetamine, cigarettes, sugar, tobacco. Shields are attracted to substances that calm them. And so those would be things like alcohol and opiates. I took the quiz, which by the way, you guys get his book because then who doesn't love to take a quiz? I took the quiz. 
I'm I'm both. <laughs> We're all both. We're all hybrids, but we always sort out a little bit or a lot towards one side or the other. Yeah. I'm going to drive her crazy because we got to move on, but you know what? Shields always say that. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> it's so pre- it's so predictable. You know what? Why? Cuz when you call me a sword, you looked down at it when he said it, it was with distaste in your mouth. Anyway, on today today's episode, Celine Dion mentioned that she's got fifth person syndrome. And I thought to myself, because we'll address what this is, whenever there's a disease where they don't bother to give it a medical name, I figure how bad, how bad, they didn't even bother in a room going, you know, Schleppenman's uh, syndrome or what. They right. said, yeah, we'll call it stiff, like leaky gut. They just went, well, you know what? I got to have dinner. Let's go home. We'll figure it out a name later. And they just ended What's up calling What's the gut doing? Gut. It's, I was leaking. But this is a real, this is a real thing. And it's, it's shocking. It's what really the, kind of horrifying. It's horrifying. Yeah. Um, how fear gets stuck in the brain, which is a, a great topic in that um, how biological fear gets stored impacts PS, PTSD potentially and how treatment for anxiety. Because if you can get rid of deep-seated fears that are not rational, then you're on the road to recovery. So because we need a fear reflex. In our This Just Happened segment, non-invasive detection of any stage cancer. They're trying to get to the point where David will talk about one test that can catch cancer so early that it's prevented, but for a, a wide range of cancers and something that hits close to home for me in our, hey, what about me, where we take a phone call a question from you, a listener. It's about cognition, cognitive decline, and hearing. And my wife, I asked her, is it okay if I mentioned that she has a cochlear implant because her hearing is really, really not great. She said, sure. So we can talk about that when we take the call. But first, David, stiff person syndrome. I saw it and I thought, no, this is made up. This can't be a thing. And then you read on and you go, whoa, she's been struggling for a while and they don't necessarily have a cure and diagnosis seems difficult. So what's the deal with this stiff person syndrome? This is an autoimmune disorder, more common in women, as are all autoimmune disorders. And it actually comes from an elevation of a certain antibody that we have in the system that's been identified. Remember this, glutamic acid decarboxylase. Glutamic acid decarboxylase. I suspected that. And when those levels are elevated, by the way, they're elevated in other autoimmune diseases like diabetes, as an example, but this tends to affect people in their 20s up to their 50s. And it's a disconnect between the brain and the spinal cord and those neurologic pathways. Awful. What happens is that people have these spasms and rigidities and have trouble walking, they have trouble phonating and talking, singing, their balance is off, they move slowly. What's also interesting about this condition is that loud noise can potentiate those Mm. stiff episodes. So if you're a singer on stage with a loud orchestra, you might not, it might trigger you. You might go into an episode. Anna, exactly. That's what I found interesting about about her having this problem, because that's what she does. And she's also upright for long periods of time. There's a lot of noise. And I'm not sure if it mentioned in any of these articles that her singing was impaired. I I don't know if that... I'm not sure, but this is a woman who's worked really hard. Like she did this, you know what I mean? In addition to all the stuff she's done, she does her residencies at Vegas and stuff. Like this is not like a, a woman who's 
she would have to definitely, it would have to be a serious medical condition for her to not work. But it's what I said. That's what I said in introducing. It doesn't sound, when you hear stiff person syndrome, I I didn't mean it to demean it, but it's like they really didn't bother. (laughs) They adjourned before they gave it a serious name. So it sounds kind of trivial. And then when you see, especially the scary part, David, this can happen anytime. There's no warning sign in the progression I read is random. There's no path for this where you can estimate what's going to happen. So she could be on stage and all of a sudden have some kind of seizure, lose the ability to stand. I mean, correct? This sneaks up on you. Yes. It's also not very common. It's like that expression, one in a million. That's what this is. And there's no treatment for this. That's the sad part. I mean, we've identified what the antibody problem is. I'm thinking at some point they're going to work on some monoclonal antibodies to go after this. But the only treatments right now are we use something called the IVIG, that's intravenous immunoglobulin. And that just gives a a blunting, if you will, of the autoimmune response. And then there are muscle relaxants and gabapentin and other things. And also, my understanding is the pre- how it presents looks like a lot of other illnesses. So it may take a long time to diagnose this even because it is so rare, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And if you think about it, you this thing looks like MS. It looks like Parkinson's. So it's misdiagnosed for long periods of time. So it's a, it's a really unfortunate sadness for her and anyone that's got this. Fear, our next issue Yes. It's pretty pretty stunning because we all have this fear reflex, which is what helps us survive. And I never th- realized that with like PTSD, it's an irrational fear. You're, you're, you're looped into something that's bigger and you can't let go of the fear. So it's deep seated. And this new study, David, talked about how fear gets stuck in our memory, correct? And then and has a place there that then can, with anxiety and stuff, can grow, right? Yes. And this is another, this is another disconnect. It's a disconnect in the brain between the amygdala, which is our feeling center, and the frontal lobes where we have reasoning. So we get this shocking scare and it gets processed differently. And we do know that these pathways are abnormal. There are only two innate fears that we're born with. All other fears are learned. Can, can you guess what those two fears might Falling. be? Falling. Falling, absolutely. And very good, Anna. My parents coming over unannounced. Was the <laughs> that would be always, that's bigger that's, than falling. That's Fa- so close. <laughs> falling I'll, and... I'll tell you why it's so close. It's loud sounds. So <laughs> that, there, and there you go. Yes. That was my way. That was my yes. cry for help. Thank yes. you. You didn't know how it got there. But... You're going to wear those pants? Wait, okay. fear of loud sounds because we just get startled by loud sounds? Yes, we get startled. Does the loud sounds mean like, oh no, something's coming to kill me? It's startling no matter what. Yes, it's a, it's a fight or flight reaction. Got it. It's also interesting how this happens because these fears in certain people, and it's also we see the same issue in the brain with alcoholism and anxiety disorders. So there's some connection there between alcohol, anxiety, and fear disorders. It all happens in the same place in the brain. We've identified a protein that suppresses a lot of these gene expressions. And we see this protein lower in these conditions. Don't try to remember this. It's not even that interesting, but it's called PRDM. 
And that specific protein has been measured in people with these disorders, and they're significantly lower. There, there's a certain branding that happens in the brain when these things implant, and that's why they uh, keep coming back. If you think of where you were when 9-11 happened, you know exactly where you were. Yep. For those of us over 80, we remember where we were when Kennedy was assassinated. Where uh, All of these different huge events, we can trace back immediately where we were. There's branding in the brain. When all these chemicals come out in this, in this quick release, cortisol is in there, epinephrine's in there, uh, it literally brands a little piece into the memory system of your brain. I see. I was thinking about that the other day that I can remember in vivid detail the entire day of my daughter being born. I say it being born as if I, she just magically appeared, but <laughs> she didn't come out of my body with no painkillers. But, but then I could, I couldn't remember. I don't, if you said, what did you do last Tuesday? But I don't know. Let me look at my calendar. Oh, I had lunch with so-and-so. Well, traumatic event. That's what I mean. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's how, like imprinted on my brain. I mean, I mean, it imprints in a way. And then with, with people with anxiety disorders, it gets out. Of, it's, it's irrationally. Then it irrationally services. David, is that really the voice in your head? I remember, I, I think I told the story once where I was, I'll, I'll make it brief. I was for, worried about getting fired. People know me. I've heard the story because it, it was the one that, that was the aha moment for me. And the guy who was an acquaintance said, you know what? You may get fired and it's going to really be bad, but you'll deal with it. But you're firing yourself in your head three, four, five times a night, and it feels real. You're putting yourself through that. And it mm -hmm. really woke me up going, the same release, the same chemical release, the same horror. You wake up and you feel real. And we put ourselves, I guess that's where the 60s book from Baba Ramdas, Be Here Now, is all about. Just be in the present because you're creating, creating scenarios that don't exist. Is that part of this? That's the same Absolutely. part of the brain? Absolutely, because that's anxiety. You're worried about being fired. You haven't been fired yet except in your own brain. So if you, when you get anxious, one way to try to, you know, ease out of that, are you anxious because something's happened or is it going to happen? If it hasn't happened yet, give yourself a little break. Focus on the fact that you don't know what's going to happen. You're worried about a certain outcome, but that outcome hasn't shown its face. I call so it future worrying. And my husband is really, really good at future worrying. He'll come up with some scenario and he'll just say it like, well, this thing is going to happen. I'm like, wait, what are you talking? He's gotten to like A, B, C, D, E, you know, because he has that thing in his brain where he can future worry. And I'm like, what? Well, you know this what? Is... He's also the guy who has the bottled water downstairs when the earthquake hits, you're, you're alive in the generator. <laughs> those are those guys too. I want one of those guys That's around, true. okay? Who converted the root cellar for me because the world is ending and you go, uh-huh, come on down. That's we true. got chips. <laughs> so... I mean, there is a portion of that, too. You look at these guys, the Warren Buffetts of the world, who anticipate what's coming. And I guess you think seven steps ahead. That's a form of worrying, but you put it to good use. It, with a PTSD, David, that's an exaggerated worrying, right, that just keeps you, then gets into an almost OCD loop, right? And PTSD has that same pathway involved in the brain. Right. So absolutely. Let's get to the, this just happened, because this is fascinating. Detecting non-invasively cancers and a wide variety of cancers. It sounds like the Theranos thing where you take one drop of blood and can diagnose everything else. Now she's going to jail. This, however, looks like it could be a legitimate thing, correct? 
Yes, and there have been actually some studies that have detected some of these stage one cancers. In fact, stage one cancer is a curable cancer, no matter what it is. And there are two cancers where this doesn't apply. Those are urologic cancers and gliomas. Those are brain cancers. You're not going to catch those cancers at stage one. But these other cancers you can detect, and that's been done. What's What's really interesting about this study, and this isn't a new approach to trying to solve the cancer problem. Cancers live in an environment, and around the cancer cells, there's a matrix of other things. There are lymphocytes, there are cytokines, there are metabolites of other things. So it's, it's sitting in a pool of other things. So for years, we've been looking at this pool to see if we could find something that was common to these early cancers. And they came up with, they found, this is another word, it'll slide right off your tongue, glycosaminoglycans. Let's just call those gags at this point. But these things are elevated in in stage one cancers. And some of these stage one cancers, uh, colon cancers, B-cell lymphomas, uh, these, these, and prostate cancers, these gags are elevated. They can f- look at this microenvironment and find them. And you can find this stuff in blood and urine. So it's pretty easy to test for this. Is a gag, is it like something the body's producing in response to the cancer? Is it like, what is that that they're finding? What is it that's elevated? That's a great question. I think what that is, is something that the cancer produces mm. in order to mitigate the environment to allow it to keep growing. Year, years ago, and this is now commonplace in, in treating cancer, we were looking at blood vessels. Blood vessels in cancers are different. So you have a different vascular system. And what we were doing was trying to block off these blood vessels, the cancer blood vessels, in opposition to the normal blood vessels. So that was a treatment that's been out there for a while. It hasn't been universally successful, but looking at the microenvironment of a, of a cancer is, is very interesting. And there's a ton of studies now going on. When will this treatment be doable? Well, th- I think this is doable pretty much any minute. There are, really? Yeah, there are some problems. First of all, it's very expensive. So we're not going to um, see this on a nationwide basis at this point. I was going to say, are they going to add it to our CBC at one point? You just get your, you get your A1C, you get your, all your liver panel, you get, and then you also get this added to it? I absolutely think that's right. I think, Anna, this is going to be, become a biomarker. And that's awesome. There are only about 10% of cancers at stage one that we can identify now. So it's not 100% of these cancers, but you bet as we get a little smarter about this and a little more tuned our in. Kids, our kids will have that benefit yeah. of, of, of different treatment, different detection. Wait, can I ask a question real quick before we move on? Sure. So you said that it won't find gliomas. So my brother-in-law is dealing with a crazy glioblastoma. And as we know, that's a horrible prognosis. He's doing a great job raising a million dollars right now for brain cancer research. And the question that I had in watching, because we're coming up on the one year anniversary of learning that he had this giant thing in his head. Why? It's one of those things where it's like, if he had gotten a brain scan 
but you wouldn't know to get a brain scan. Why don't we get brain scans? Is that why is that not commonly recommended? Is it dangerous to have a brain? Like, why is that not something that we do? Some of us as clinicians do these scans. I do these scans. You do? And they're awesome. They're not, they're not always perfect. Yeah. And the type of scan also has some relevance here. A, a CAT scan, for instance, is not as sensitive as an MRI. A right. non-contrasted scan is not as sensitive as a contrast study. It's not easy to get people to go in for these tests. When it's uh, preventative and screening, insurance doesn't pay for that. So these can be very costly. Right. And a lot of people just don't want to know this. A lot of people you know, are so worried when you send them in for these scans. At the same time, in the years that I practice, there have been a lot of lives saved because of these scans and these early de detectable uh, metrics that we have, the blood tests, like you just said, the biomarkers. Watching what my brother-in-law has gone through over the past year, I would say if anybody has any inkling or sneaking suspicion something's going on with their brain, just go get the scan. Are there any symptoms, David, that, that, that I mean, other than blurry, obvious stuff? Is there subtle stuff? For the gliomas? Um, headache is probably the most common presenting continuous sign. headache bad headache yes and it also depends where the glioma is in the brain if it's near the optic nerve uh, the, the nerve the eyeball it's interesting your your eyeball has a nerve that comes out of the back that's the optic nerve it crisscrosses in the middle of your brain and it ends up in the back of your head that's where you see your vision is actually in the back of your head and so if you get a tumor that's in that chiasm where they cross, your, your vision is going to be upset. Uh, here, here's a, just a quick story about identifying these cancers early. Patient of mine, he's made this public, so I'm not speaking out of school. I'm not mentioning his name. Comes in for his annual examination. I do these tumor markers. His pancreas tumor marker was just a little bit elevated. Uh, I sent him for his body scan. We see something in his kidney uh, to know if a kidney uh, tumor is a, a cyst, benign, or a cancer, not benign. You have to do the MRI. So we put him in the MRI machine. I went with him and I asked a technician to squirt some contrast in there because I wanted to look at his pancreas. And he, two thirds of his pancreas was socked in with cancer. Oh he had goodness. no symptoms. Uh, two days later, he had his pancreas taken out, uh, the bad parts, and this was six years ago. Wow. So, um, How much of a pancreas can you, I guess a third, is that it? If it's the right part of the pancreas? Yes. If it's yes. a long, so if it was in the other end of the pancreas, different, different. Well, the, the body and the tail, which are the, the middle and the back, they have the worst prognosis if you have a cancer there. If you have a cancer in the head of the pancreas, uh, you have a, a, a better prognosis. They can do a procedure called a Whipple procedure. That's what my friend did, who yeah. was in my class, and she's, that was five years ago. She's doing great. Yeah, so they have a, they, they do have a chance. Uh, it's, a, it's a horrible operation. Yeah, it sounds excruciating but, but it's better than life. pancreatic cancer jesus yes yes no kidding hey in our what about me segment where you get to ask a question this one hits close to home i mentioned before my wife said it's okay to talk about the fact that she has a cochlear implant but this one 
Prince Person wanted to know about hearing and how it may affect cognition. So let's give a listen. Hi, Dr. Kipper. My name is Rachel, and I have a question for you about hearing aids and specifically the impact of hearing aids on how someone ages. So I have a family member who has been wearing hearing aids since about the age of 40, and I wanted to know if there are any effects that we should look out for, any impact on how they will age, whether that's something that would impact their cognitive function or behaviorally or just any way that them wearing a hearing aid could affect their aging process? Rachel, great question. And the answer is yes. And there's a thousand studies that validate this. Cognitive changes because of hearing loss uh, are a road to dementia. It's the one modifiable risk factor that we have for dementia. So if somebody comes in with memory loss, you want to check their hearing. If a family member notices that there's a hearing problem, encourage them to get a a really thorough hearing evaluation. So the answer is yes. And if you also think about what happens to people that have hearing loss, they isolate socially. And when they isolate socially, there's depression that comes with that. All it's, it's a cascade of events that lead to dementia. It's interesting. My wife, when we would go to parties, and we didn't—we're not party people. But if there are people more than Dave knows us because we hang out with him, but if there are six or eight people at the table, and I never realized the extent, she kind of talks to the person next to them who always goes, "Oh, your wife is so sweet," and all that. A, because she's a good listener to begin with, but B, she can't navigate all of the noise at the table, even with the cochlear implant. It's very hard, so she starts isolating, and until the cochlear implant got, and David was there when it happened, she had it put in. We are, we you know, researched it, whatever. But now at least a phone call comes in and it's Bluetooth connected and she can hear it. Now at least she can turn the speaker up on her phone, move the treble around, whatever, when we're watching television. But it's still, I, I noticed with her, she's still better if she's looking at you and also leading your lips and everything is with closed caption too. But the cochlear implant was a, was a lifesaver. But for people who are considering that, they should know the learning curve too. That thing, when you get it, it's like teaching your phone you know how your voice, so you can do commands. This is like a year of beeps and buzzers oh, wow. and weird sounds. And it was really difficult for her. And there was no resource really for her to find out how to navigate that. So it's a weird thing, right, David? It's, it's, there's not a lot of research out there that they can give people. It's also very common. Uh, a lot of these hearing uh, impairments are genetic. So if it's in your family tree, you should look for it. Um, again, I think anybody listening that has somebody in their family that they're worried about a hearing loss, make sure their doctor, when they're in for their annual physical, gives them a very, not in their doctor's office, but to an actual hearing institute, gets a good hearing evaluation. Yeah. And, and by the way, there are quite a few funny stories in our history of my son and his friend in the backseat of the cars asking my wife something and her, I can't tell the story here because there's a blueness to it. And they were six but um, she thought she heard his friend say something about X-rated movies, and she gave them a lecture, and it was really <laughs> nothing about what it is. So there are quite a few stories like that in our household. So, um, And by the way, with somebody who's hearing loss, they can't, like my wife, she can't hear a lot of times when I'm talking to her. However, when I walk out of the room, David, she can hear if I go, or just do that under my breath. Somehow that 
That, that you can just sense. You just you don't need to hear that. You just know when someone's rolling their eyes. That's on the X chromosome. I, we don't yeah. have that actually. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. And the funny thing is, if I can tell, this David was there when she got the, the the implant, and she was down in surgery, and there was a fire in our neighborhood. You know, one of the wildfires was going, and we were waiting to be evacuated. So all I could think about is that my wife coming out of this cochlear surgery. The first thing she hears is our clearly is our house burnt to the ground. Know, we don't want something funny about that. Song. Yeah, you're like the worst news ever. But you heard it. Oh my God, you heard every word so clearly. And thank you for being there, David. David's the best. He's uh, God, you saved my family's life many, many times. Um, Anna, we should do a wrap here and let people know how they can get in touch with us. Hey guys, if you want your question answered by Dr. Kipper, and who wouldn't? He's amazing. Go to bedsidematters.org, fill out the form, send us a recording of your question, and we might just get to it on the show. And check out the book, which we referred to today, Override, which is really about how your brain sabotages your behaviors. And if you know what kind of neurotype you are, you have a shot. You have a shot at a productive, good life. Also, you want a good life? And it's cookbooks. Uh, eat happy and eat happy too. And by the way, I, I bought mine, Anna, for the holidays. So go. mine Great. came today. I'm very excited. Wonderful. There you go. And I ordered mine too. And I'm getting your sauces this weekend. Thank you. How about that? I love sauces. Well, thank you. And uh, check out, of course, bestsidematters.org. If you're up in the middle of the night, you're bored. You know what? Follow us, but not too close. Six feet. And wear a mask. But I'm not forcing you. If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, you can go to our website, bedsidematters.org, and leave a voicemail or submit a question. The information on Bedside Matters and the resources available for download are not intended as and should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.